Hey everybody, we're so glad you joined us today. No matter how you found us, we're glad you found us because everybody is welcome here at Menlo Church and that means you. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. So we hope you will enjoy this message. Let's take a look. Hey brother, I know you're going through it. You know what it says in the good book? This too shall pass. It says in the Bible, cleanliness is next to godliness. So clean up your life. Let me, let me, let me find that for you. I got it. When God closes a door, he throws open a window. It's, it's in there somewhere. God works in mysterious ways. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone that isn't. Just take my word for it. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. Well, I want to welcome everybody in this room, folks, at all of our campuses. So glad you're here for this. The end of this series, I'm going to miss this series. I'm going to miss that bumper video, but I'm not going to miss the music in the bumper video. That's like... <laughs> The most irritating music I have ever heard. Did you notice that? Whoever wrote that should be locked up for a long time. Anyway, uh, I want to start and end this message with one of the oldest prayers in the church. It's actually dated back to Jesus. It's actually called the Jesus Prayer. And it's simply this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the sting, of course, is in those last two words. That's, that's my story. Not just, I've failed to actualize my growth potential or I've committed errors in judgment. Wrongdoer, damage causer, moral fraud. Very humbling statement, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Very counter to our therapeutic culture. We've been a series about statements that people often think are in the Bible, but they're really not, and, and thinking about them can help us understand God better. And this last one is this phrase, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. And uh, you hear this one a lot. Some people get really attached to it. A friend of mine knows a woman who liked it so much, she actually had it tattooed on her arm. But it's not actually in the Bible. Uh, it seems biblical. Sin is a bad thing. We're all sinners. We're supposed to love everybody. But it's not actually in the Bible, and I think sometimes it's used in a way that can be misleading. So I want to walk through this saying in two parts. The second part will be about loving sinners, how important that is. But let's start with the first part, hate the sin. The writers of Scripture have a lot to say about sin. According to the Bible, how widespread is sin? Anybody have any idea? Very widespread. Romans, Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. According to the writers of Scripture, how damaging is sin? Very damaging. For the wages, the results, the outcome of sin is death. According to the writers of Scripture, how seriously should we struggle against sin? Very seriously. James puts it like this. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Really? Really? Is it that serious? Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we enter into the world of the Bible, we enter into another 
kind of world in understanding uh, the moral weight of the human condition. And because the biblical writers believe sin is cunning and baffling and terribly destructive to human well-being as individuals and for our world, they have many words to describe it. Kind of like folks that live up north are supposed to have many, many words for snow. I don't know if that's true or not, but the Bible has a lot of words for sins. I want to run through some of them to help us all understand this word better. Uh, one word describes sin as wandering off the path, like when you take a wrong turn and you end up going where you never wanted to be. And sin is that way. You end up someplace in your life and you think, how did I ever get here? A very common word in the New Testament for sin is missing the mark. And they used a word that described an archer with bad aim where the arrow went where the archer did not want the arrow to go. You do not want to be standing near the target if the archer has bad aim. Misshot arrows do damage. And sin is that way. I say and do and become what I never intended to, didn't aim at. Another word they used meant broken, like a broken chair or broken computer that's not useful anymore. And sin does that to people. There was a series on television a few years ago called Breaking Bad. And that was about sin. We don't use the word sin too much, so I don't think that sin was part of the series much. But Breaking Bad is just a less churchy sounding name for what sin is and what sin does. Another word they would use for sin is a blemish. Like a blemished animal that was no longer fit to be offered for God. One of the laws of adolescence is the more excited you are about a date, the bigger the pimple you will get on that day. And I know that one from personal experience. Some 200 times they use a word that means crooked or bent or twisted or distorted, not on the level. We think about our nation this week. Uh, we had a former president who resigned in disgrace and famously said, I am not a crook. And the Bible says, no, there's crookedness in all of us. Another word for sin is rebellion. It, it involves this defiance against God and against the moral order of how things are, like a little four-year-old girl whose mother told her, you can ride your bike as far down the sidewalk as this driveway and as far down as that driveway, but no farther. If you ride farther, I will spank you. And true story, that strong-willed four-year-old stuck out her bottom and said, well, you better spank me now because I've got places to go. <laughs> That's the human heart. Many dozens of times, sin is referred to as owing a debt because sinning against God, against another person, always comes at a price. Forgiving somebody always costs something. Sometimes sin is pictured as swerving or going astray, like somebody who is too drunk to walk or in our day, too drunk to drive safely, and they're going to hurt somebody. They're going to. Sometimes sin is called lawlessness. Lawlessness. Because to engage in it, I have to rationalize to myself, at least for that moment, that uh, ethical principles, laws, right and wrong, don't apply to me, not me. And related to that is the notion of sin as trespass. Because we're violating boundaries. I'm going where I ought not go. 
And at the same time, my mind is justifying why it's okay for me to go, where it is that at some level, I know I ought not to go, but I can always find some reason, especially somebody in my profession. A minister parked his car in a no parking zone in a large city because he was short of time, couldn't find a space with a meter. So he wrote a note, left it under the windshield wiper that read, I have circled the block 10 times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. And when he returned, he found a ticket from a police officer along with this note. I've circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I will lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. <laughs> One of the most important words for sin is the word impurity. James says, purify your heart. Or Paul writes to young Timothy, do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Or maybe most famously, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I know, I know that word purity can sound quite old-fashioned or, or even oppressive in our day, and it has been, sometimes is used by churches in just weird ways, culturally strange ways or ways that are oppressive, particularly for women. So I want to spend a moment on it. Now, the notion of purity at its core means there is a way things are supposed to be when they're right and whole and wholesome and good. Just at the physical level, uh, we have standards. There's a Food and Drug Administration, and it's got standards of purity that are not to be violated. And if you ever read FDA standards, they're actually a little concerning because of how much impurity they allow in our food. I'll read you a couple that kind of disturbed me. Apple butter, if you ever read apple butter. This is FDA. If it averages four or more rodent hairs per 100 grams, or if it averages five or more insects, not counting mites or aphids, which are apparently okay with the government, the FDA will pull it. Otherwise, it just goes right on your bagel with three or less rodent hairs on it. Mushrooms. Mushrooms cannot be sold only if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams. 19 maggots, it's okay. This is the government. This is your government. The fig paste. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams, the FDA will toss it out. More than 13. If there's 12 or less, apparently other insect body parts are okay. We just don't want looking at their little heads when we're having fig paste. Hot dogs, you don't want to know. <laughs> if they took all the impurities out of a hot dog, there would be nothing left at all. The language of purity reminds us of something that we all know, that there is a way things are supposed to be. And that's true of fig paste, and, and it's true of the human character, love and justice. And sin is simply the destruction of that. It means that we end up polluting the physical world and our own characters and our own souls and and the moral world around us, because we live in a moral and spiritual ecosystem just as we do a physical ecosystem, and we all affect it, and we're all infected by it. Sin enslaves and degrades and deadens and depresses, and this is a real important thing for us to be aware of. Sometimes, even around churches, people are kind of concerned about getting punished for sin, and the main message might be, here's how you keep from being punished from sin but actually the freedom that we need most is freedom from the power of sin. Churches get a little weird about that. Sometimes people around churches can wonder things like, how much sin can there be in my life before I need to start worrying? 
Is there a level of sin in the acceptable zone for a Christian? And then if you go higher, you're in danger, like the level of plastic in the ocean. Is there a limit to impurity? And is it high or is it low? This is a little bit like asking, how much cancer should I let build up in my body before I ought to do something about it? The, 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 the problem with sin is not just simply that we're going to get in trouble for it someday. It is its own punishment at its core. Now, what sin should I hate? Sometimes people defend the love of the sinner, hate the sin, saying from a verse in Romans where Paul says these amazing words, love must be sincere. You can work on that one your whole life. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Uh, notice, Paul is not saying that uh, we're supposed to hate the sin in somebody else's life, those people out there. He's saying, I should hate my sin, my coldness, my greed, my self-centeredness, anything that would keep me from loving sincerely. And so I want to take a moment in this message to call us all to do that this weekend. I just want to talk as your pastor about sin for a moment. Because I've watched too many marriages end up in coldness and resentment and pain and death where little lives get shattered and it could have been otherwise. I've seen too many young people and honestly, not so young people who live in a hypersexualized culture, make really bad decisions and somebody's heart gets shattered or somebody's body makes a promise that their, their will will not keep. I've seen family members grow cold and distant and go for days or weeks or years in silence and, and cruelty for reasons so stupid they can't even remember. This is the week of the 4th of July. We've all seen a nation torn apart by racial injustice, by materialism, by division and suspicion when words and deeds of repentance and contrition and humility might have honored God and healed wounds but did not come. I've watched parents idolize work at the expense of little children. I've watched people get so consumed with just more, 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 more that they forget in a world there's thousands of little children that die of hunger every day and I can be a part of the solution. I can save some. I've seen women demeaned by men who cover it up in soul-destroying ways. I've seen lies destroy what could have been a wonderful friendship, heard words of gossip that tear down a reputation like that, seen workplaces, you all have, where fear or power or intimidation turned the people who work there into shadows of who they might have been. I have seen what pride and ego and deceptiveness can do to my heart, to my heart. And so I just simply want to ask every one of us this weekend, this is part of what it means to be a church, surrender your will, your life, wholly to God. You need to do this. Ask God to convict you of any sin. When's the last time you've done that? Just in a few moments of quiet, ask God, would you prompt my conscience and anything, any attitude, any habit, any words, any deeds that I've done, 
where sin's got a toll hold on me. God, I want to confess it. If you've wronged somebody, go to that person and confess it. And if you've done something wrong, make it right as best you can. If you need accountability, get it. Gang, the relief of forgiveness and a new start and a cleansed conscience and a God-honoring life and freedom are only one honest prayer away from getting started. So don't neglect this. That's the problem, the power of sin and how God wants to free us from it. Then there's the second part of this saying, love the sinner. Now, this seems like the kind of thing Jesus would say. Jesus loved everybody. He was called the friend of sinners. That was intended as an insult, by the way. He wore like a badge of honor. He got in trouble for this all the time. It's more or less what got him killed. He hung out with sinners, came to help sinners. Paul wrote, this saying is reliable and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So he was like a sinner magnet. And yet, Jesus never says, love the sinner. He says, love your neighbor. He says, love your enemy. He says, love one another. But he never actually says the words, love sinners. Why not? Well, of course, for one thing, just saying love your neighbor covers everybody. Your neighbor is not just the person next door to whoever you run into, so sinners are already included. But I have a feeling part of it is because if Jesus would have said love the sinner, his followers would have started looking for sinners, would have started dividing the world up and into sinners, and then what should we call the other category? good right-thinking people of the correct ideology or party or religion or sexuality or values, people like me, and then we get all puffed up about it and, and say, hey, come look at me loving those sinners. So interesting, Jesus hangs out with sinners all the time, but he never says, I love you, but I hate your sin. Instead, he talks with them a lot about God's mercy and God's grace and God's acceptance and God's forgiveness and, and I love you and why don't you come get a fresh start. In fact, about the only times in the Gospels, you check this out, where Jesus expresses hatred for sin is the sin of loveless, judgmental spirits when he's hanging out with people who regarded themselves as spiritual experts, spiritually mature people. One of his most famous stories is told about this. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. In other words, they were guilty of the great sin of not loving, but they didn't think of themselves as sinners. They thought that those were the sinners. Jesus told this parable about a proud religious Pharisee, spiritual expert, who loudly thanks God, God, I thank you that I'm not like that corrupt tax collector over there. And the corrupt tax collector is quietly praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. By the way, that's the origin of the Jesus prayer. That's where it starts 2,000 years ago, that story. And it's that sinful tax collector, to the shock of the crowd, in his brokenness and neediness and humiliation, that's the hero. We have no business pronouncing judgment on other people because we don't know anybody's full story. There's a writer named C.S. Lewis, and uh, he put it like this, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but uh, it, it's so helpful it's worth reading. Human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, 
it is quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning a purple heart. When a man who is abused from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. It is as well to put this the other way around. Some of us who seem quite nice people may in fact have made so little use of a good heredity and a good upbringing that we are really worse than those who we regard as fiends. That is why Christians are told not to judge. We only see the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. There will be surprises. Lewis says, when the final judgment comes, there will be surprises. Now, as you hear these words, if you're wondering if there's ever a good reason for picking up a cat, cats are made by God and loved by God and should be picked up by, by human beings and loved often, shouldn't they? A few years ago, some staff member gave me a stuffed toy cat that suffered many travails at the hands of many of our staff over the years. This last month, I walked into my office and saw this. <laughs> Behold, I am back in my resurrected, glorified body. So <laughs> apparently there will be cats in heaven and you should start loving them now. Jesus says, judge not because religious people have a hard time not judging. It's a weird thing about us. I give up doing bad things, drinking, smoking, swearing, bad movies, watching the wrong TV shows. Oh, I start good habits, praying, reading the Bible, exercise, giving, volunteering. Those are good things to do, but this is the way the evil one works. Very often, my next thought is, what's the matter with other people? What's the matter with you? Why can't you be more like me? Why can't you do what I do? And a little root of hypocritical, judgmental lovelessness springs up in the middle of all of that glittering virtue. And... and, and I think I'm doing good at this and good at this and good at this. And, and ironically, it chokes out love, and love is the first commandment. And this is why sometimes people who pursue all that virtue can end up worse off than if they never would have at all. It's interesting, in our day, Christians will often lament the lack of Christian power and influence in politics and society and culture, the loss of belief in moral absolutes and, and, and theological orthodoxy. But the Pharisees were very committed to moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy. And they were not bringing in paradise. Awful lot of leaders in the Middle Ages that had a lot of power were very committed to moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy, and it didn't usher in paradise. In Geneva, in John Calvin's day, Philip Yancey writes about this, uh, church attendance was compulsory. It was the law. If you didn't go to church on Sunday, you'd be arrested in Geneva. Here are things that were forbidden. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, statues, church bells, organs, wearing rouge, jewelry, or lace, gambling, playing cards, or naming children after anyone but figures in the Bible. Those things were all against the law. Don't you wish you lived in Geneva? A father who christened his son Claude, which is a name not found in the Bible, spent four days in jail, as did a woman, I'm not making this up, as did a woman whose hairdo reached an immoral height. Apparently, there's a certain height that hair can go to where it's moral, and then beyond that, it was judged to be immoral. 
I will not have that problem. A child who struck his parents was beheaded in Geneva. Calvin's, John Calvin's stepson and daughter-in-law were caught in sexual misconduct and both beheaded. When the church turns into the morals police, we got the power now, we'll pass the laws now, generally doesn't help too much. The world does not need more Christians pointing out what people are doing wrong. At the end of Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus says this, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's just weird. The very fact that I believe that there's such a thing as sin and we ought to strive against it can create this idea, this illusion that I'm better than those secularists out there or those relativists out there or those non-believers out there that don't even believe in the word sin. Really interesting line in a, a book, To Kill a Mockingbird. At the heart of it, the writer says that her dad told her something about right and wrong that she never forgot. Her dad was Atticus Finch, who's the hero of this wonderful book. She writes that her dad said to her, remember, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. It's an innocent little creature that just wants to bring beauty in the world. And in many ways, the whole book kind of flows out of that one moral teaching. And then she says, that was the only time I ever heard Atticus say it was a sin to do something. Now, why is that the only time that he uses the word sin? He's a real upright character. If you've ever read that book, he's one of the great moral heroes in all of literature. There's lots of sin, lots of wrong in the world. He fights against it with great moral courage. I think maybe that's the only time he used the word because it's so hard to raise children that are righteous without making them self-righteous. It's easy, so terribly easy, for those of us who use the word sin to take pride in our right beliefs. All the wrong things I've never done. It is easy, so terribly easy, for people like me to see sin out there and miss sin in here and damage folks and then end up not loving and not even knowing that I'm not loving. So let's not do that. It is so easy to miss grace. Let's not miss grace. Let's humble ourselves. Let's love. Sin, there's massive amounts of sin. How much sin is there in the Bay Area? Oh my goodness, tons of sin. There's Sinapalooza out there. San Francisco, are you kidding me? Marin County, Atherton, oh my gosh. Redwood City, East Palo Alto, arrogance, greed, misuse of power, envy, promiscuity, hedonism, godlessness. Wow, wow. How much sin is there in this church? Oh my goodness, wow. It's a sinapalooza around here. You have, I know, I get data on this on a regular basis because of my job. How much sin is there in my heart? Oh my. Oh my. Only God knows fully. I don't even know fully. What I know is scary. I know this much. There's at least enough sin in here to keep Jesus busy for the next several decades if he had nothing else to do. So let's love. Let's, let's hate the sin that's in us because it keeps us from being the people that God wants us to be and messes up our world so badly. And then let's be 
the world's leading experts, not at pointing out the sins of the world out there, not even at being able to demonstrate the validity of the concept of sin. Let's be the world's leading experts at bringing our own sin to God, laying it at the cross. Let's ask for his help. Let's ask for freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Let's humble ourselves. And to get ready to do that, I want to ask you to watch this story. This is the story of one life among us. But every one of us has a story. And the labels and the stuff that we wrestle with will be different, but every one of us, do. only God knows. And then we're going to end by praying the prayer that we started with. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It took so long for me to embrace this prayer. I didn't understand why I needed mercy when I felt like I was the victim of a grievous sin. My husband of over 15 years told me that he was struggling with pornography. And at that time, I didn't really understand what that meant or how it impacted our relationship. We had both recently become uh, Christians when he made that confession. That would be the beginning of understanding that it was much more than looking at lewd photos or videos. It was like this fake substitute for this beautiful union designed by God. And I would later learn that it was sexual addiction. I grew up with fears of abandonment and rejection from childhood experiences. And I just really wanted my husband to love me. I wanted to know I was lovable. But because of his addiction, he couldn't really express love to me in that way. And that triggered me. You know, I felt rejected, betrayed, used, damaged, ugly. You know, just not good enough and angry. And that anger turned into rage, and I directed that rage at him. And the more I kind of belittled, um, tried to control, manipulate him, the more he shut down and withdrew. And the more he withdrew, the more I raged at him. It's like we were stuck in this insanity cycle with no end. We tried pastoral counseling. We tried this special Christian counseling, but nothing seemed to help until one day a friend arranged a meeting with a recovering sex addict and alcoholic. And he, for the first time, really explained addiction to me. And he told me, hurt people hurt people. He said, each of you need to get in your own recovery program. And he told me that, you know, your husband and your marriage is your co-addiction. And even though that stung, I, just, I knew that there had to be some truth to his words. So that night, I attended a 12-step recovery meeting, and that turned into five years of 12-step meetings, finding a sponsor, um, taking the steps, and really finding some recovery and healing. In the process, I learned that addiction is a disease that I am powerless over, and so is the addict. I had been so focused on the speck in his eye and the hurt I felt he was causing me that I failed to see the log in my own eye. In recovery, you know, we joke around that the uh, addicts are the crazy ones, but we, the family and friends, are actually the ones who resort to crazy and hurtful behavior. So being in program gave me the opportunity to just lay my pride down and to make amends for the sins that I committed and justified in my head and heart. 
My sponsor taught me to think before I speak and to treat everyone with kindness, including him. Our marriage didn't survive, but we are much healthier uh, friends and co-parents today. I gained compassion for him, and I was able to see him as God sees him, as a person, a person who is so worthy that Christ laid down his life for him. I think that loving him in this way, God was able to restore dignity to him and to myself. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I hope that this message blessed you, challenged you, inspired you to live differently this week as a follower of Jesus. And we hope you'll come back next week and join us again. And in the meantime, stay in touch with us on social media. Have a great week.